Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Welcome, everyone. I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy. And today we have a fantastic episode for you about cryptography. Now, why are we talking about cryptography? Well, in this COVID world that we experience, many folks are working from home, working in public locations and, or private locations. And when you're in these environments that we would say are untrusted, they're not behind the corporate firewall, you need to make sure that you're not sending your data unencrypted, in the clear, where people could listen to it. So we're going to look at this issue a little bit deeper and gain a, a better understanding of the fundamentals of cryptography, the history of cryptography, and what is it we need to do now in our roles as CISOs or security practitioners to secure our organization. G. Mark? Yeah, Ross, thank you very much. Yeah, crypto is interesting. I mean, uh, kind of full disclosure here, I've got a degree in mathematics as well as computer science and a master's in business. And so all this stuff kind of coalesces here. And, and we could spend an awful lot of time poking around in the crypto details, but guess what? We're not. Uh, the reason being primarily is that this is a CISO podcast. And therefore, what we really want to do is focus on the things that are going to help you at the business level, at the executive level. But it's interesting because cryptography does feature in virtually every certification exercise that we might be taking place as for thus you know, looking at the CISO level, whether it's a CISSP, a CISM, a GSLC, depending upon your uh, CISO, et cetera, depending upon the organization you go to. But the primary reason that crypto is important to us is it reduces our risk. Now, risk is our uncertainty of things that we could measure. And there's different elements that we go back to the fundamentals of crypto, the confidentiality, the integrity of availability, the CIA that we often learn. And crypto is really kind of a tool that can help us, well, potentially with two out of the three. And uh, if we think about it from confidentiality, we, as Ross had said, you want to make sure that information is not disclosed to an authorized third party. Crypto will do that for you. With respect to integrity, uh, what can we do with the integrity? Well, the advantage of the integrity is that we can tell very quickly if something has changed, um, much like the tamper-proof seal on a bottle of aspirin. Uh, you know that something might have happened. You don't know exactly what happened, but you know it's not in the state that it should have been. And when it comes to availability, although crypto really doesn't necessarily give us availability. You could certainly take it away from us with regard to something like ransomware, which as executives, we need to understand the principles of that and how to protect ourselves from it. Um, crypto also gives us some other business tools that we find are very helpful. One is authentication, being able to prove identity. In the physical world, we use identity cards issued by government agencies and the like, or corporate agencies to say, hey, this is me and this is who I am. But we can do that with cryptography and present those credentials pretty much worldwide and have them be trusted. And even things such as non-repudiation, being able to have the equivalent of a notarized 
document electronically uh, so that you can go to a judge if you had to and enforce in court the terms of a contract when someone has uh, cryptographically signed something. So all these things give us capabilities uh, at the CISO level for meeting business requirements. Gee, Mark, that, that's a great summary and overview of confidentiality, integrity, availability, authentication, and non-repudiation. So if we're focused on reducing risk, is there any lessons we can learn from the past so that we don't just set ourselves up from the failure? Well, that's a good point. I think what, you know the history of cryptography is rather interesting. Is uh, without getting into too much historical detail, you know, you could argue that it goes back thousands of years. Um, look at the hieroglyphics that for centuries were undecipherable until Napoleon's army discovered the Rosetta Stone in 1799 and was subsequently able to interpret a public service announcement uh, that was written in three different languages. So there's a situation that, well, you could potentially encrypt something and never get it back again. I think almost all of us could relate to the fact that we have the spreadsheet or a Word document, something that we put a password on years ago, and like, well, what was it? We can't figure it out, and it's, it's hard to get to. Um, but other failures are more catastrophic, things such as you look at um, in war. Uh, protection of military communications becomes extremely important. And during World War II, cryptographers had been able to go ahead and break things such as the Enigma. And so the kind of trivia question I ask people is that whose team first broke the Enigma? And some people go, well, Alan Turing. And says, no, it's Marian Rajewski from the Polish Secret Service. Uh, they were successful back in the 1930s. Uh, however, after they were invaded, they really weren't able to maintain uh, those facilities anymore and turn everything over to British. And if you ever do get to London, take a, about a 45, 55-minute train ride north up to Bletchley Park. Uh, you can see where they did the cryptanalytic work on the Enigma. And there's many people who suggested that that work had shortened the war by one or two years, uh, if not significantly affected the eventual outcome. Uh, but what we've find then is that organizations, whether they be corporations, whether they be individuals, whether they be governments, that rely on a method of protecting their information that gets compromised and they don't know about it, run a real risk is that they uh, continue to go. I think one of the things that came out of disclosures such as the, the WikiLeaks stuff uh, that had come out with Ed Snowden is sort of a understanding that a lot of the world's communications at the time were not being encrypted. And as a result, intelligence agencies had access to them. Uh, and so there's a two-sided coin there, one that says, well, if you believe in a well-ordered uh, society, then it's probably important to identify hazardous elements before they become dangerous. But the other side, from a civil libertarian perspective, says, well, everybody should have a right to it. And we're not going to solve that philosophical question here on the show, but it did raise awareness. And so the question for you as a CISO or as a security practitioner, as an executive is, how much security is uh, enough for what I need? How do I know that I'm doing it correctly? And then can I explain to my senior management team the reduction in risk that I have achieved? Those are kind of tough questions, but I think we're going to be able to try to give you some tools 
and thoughts about how to answer those. Great stuff. Yeah, I, I've encountered cryptography out in my career multiple times. You know, you always have a regulator or oversight who has a, a standard they have to check off. And they're going to say, do you have encryption on your laptop so that if people lose them, you know, you didn't just lose all your key secrets. There's always other ones of encryption in transit. So when we start to think about these encryption topics, like you mentioned from the early days of hieroglyphics and, and World War II, is there, is there a difference between what you would consider modern crypto systems to contain versus, let's say, legacy crypto systems that we should avoid? Well, you know, it's interesting because if we think of legacy crypto systems as those that have been around a while, and fundamentally, any commercial crypto system before the 1970s relied on what is called symmetric encryption. Symmetric encryption means that both the sender and the receiver have to have the same key. So as a naval officer, I can remember when our ships would get ready to go out to sea that uh, you would have all these sailors running around the waterfront with briefcases handcuffed to their wrists containing a weeks or months or however many months worth of crypto material. And that all had to be distributed securely before the ships got underway. And if for some reason you wanted to change all the keys and all your ships were deployed, you'd have to somehow send something to every single ship to redistribute it. Well, the problem with that is, is that that doesn't work really well today in the business world. Imagine if you want to go to Amazon and buy something. And so what happens, you go to their website, it says, hey, type in your mailing address and we will send you a sealed envelope and in two to three days when you get it, open it up, type in this big long key and then you can begin to buy securely. Wow, that sure takes a little bit of the... Uh, um, in, you know, impulse buying away, but also makes it extraordinarily difficult to create ad hoc relationships that allow you to communicate uh, in a secure manner. And so the real difference, Ross, that I think we notice today is the invention of what's called asymmetric or public key cryptography. Now, the guys who get credit for it are Whit Diffie and Marty Hellman, who published a paper uh, on new directions in cryptography in 1976. But reality is, is that if you take a look, you'll find out that it was developed at intelligence agencies. Folks at NSA said, well, we developed it in 74, but uh, we couldn't publish it because we're a government agency. And in reality, is probably Clifford Cox in 73 at GCHQ gets credit for it uh, based on some work that was done by another associate. Well, the point is, whoever publishes gets credit. And so Whit Diffie and Marty Hellman are kind of considered to be, if you will, the fathers of modern cryptography. And the real thing here with regard to this type of crypto is that no longer do we have to have some secure, out-of-band, courier, expensive method to exchange keys. We can use the mathematics. And so now what happens is our entire internet, our ability to go to a website and have an immediately secure connection uh, is all based upon this invention. And so when we talk about crypto, it's really not monolithic. There's not just a big blob of crypto, but when you pull apart your box of tools in the crypto toolbox, you'll find out they kind of fit neatly into three different piles, if you will. Symmetric algorithms, which are very fast, and they allow us to communicate securely, but well, require uh, the chicken egg problem of how do I go ahead and get the key to somebody else first? 
asymmetric cryptography, which does give us a way to get the key there first, but it's incredibly clunky and takes a lot of time, but maybe it's worth it. And the last one is what we call a hash, which is a cryptographic checksum, which allows us to prove the integrity of things. So those are the three things we're going to be looking in your toolbox. And it's important for you to know as an executive, the difference among those three different types of crypto. Got it. So what we're hearing is in the 70s, we saw a huge fundamental shift. So we don't just all use the same key to open every door, which is you know problematic when that key becomes compromised. We get to a state to where we're going to a club and the bouncer checks us for ID, make sure we are who we are. We provide some type of authentication. And then that allows us to, to be able to distribute this to, to more people and places instead of just having the one static key that, that has issues. So what do you think is, is helpful as we start to think about asymmetric encryption? What is it we have to do right to make that easy to use in an organization and helpful to protect our organization against the risks of unprotected data? Well, what we're talking about with the asymmetric is also known as public key. And it kind of brings up the term PKI, public key infrastructure. So I like to say the PK part is easy. That's just the math. The I is the hard part. And back in 2000, I gave a talk at InfoSec World in Orlando, and I entitled it PKI Don't Think So, because at the time, public key infrastructure companies were all the rage. It was kind of the latest thing. Uh, the dot-com boom was still booming. It was February of 2000, just before the crash. And it was rather interesting because that particular talk, I had the largest audience there. Everybody was packed, all the seats, and there was people in the hallway and outside, and fire marshal probably get mad at us. And the whole front row of the PKI vendors, all with scowls on their face to see what I had to say. But what we pointed out then, which was true then and perhaps not so true today, was that a lot of this infrastructure was lacking. And so one of the things that we look at when we say if we want to do the public key is we need to select a public key infrastructure on which we want to go ahead and have our organizational trust dependent upon. Now, for those of us who aren't in the business of doing crypto, it's more of a question of, for example, uh, like what phone provider do you want to have? Do we want to go ahead and go with Verizon? Do we want to go with Sprint or T-Mobile, which I guess they're merging, or AT&T? or one of the subsidiaries that are coming out with that. Okay, so we have choices there. We also have choices with regard to our public key infrastructure. And so, uh, for example, let's just take websites. If you go to a website and type HTTPS colon slant slant, and these days you almost don't need to type that anymore because uh, through the magic of redirection, if you just type in a website name, it'll usually kick you up to an HTTPS and the Electronic Frontier Foundation has a great little plugin called HTTPS Everywhere, which if you install that in your browsers, will automatically upgrade all requests to go out for HTTPS. Um, the reason I mention that and won't get into it today is that if you send out a standard HTTP request and there is someone called a man in the middle, that is to say some entity between you and the destination who can alter your communications, you can essentially have your session hijacked. Even if you're going to a banking site or things like that, even if you have two-factor authentication. Uh, it's, it's a very dangerous thing. And so encryption, if it starts at the beginning, helps to protect you. 
Uh, but back to the public key infrastructure. So they rely on something called a certificate authority. Certificate authorities, there's about 75 of them or so. If you take a look at your Microsoft uh, cert manager, now they know they're trying to get rid of Internet Explorer, which has been the easy way to look at it. But if you type CERTMGR.MSC at the run line, you can take a look at all the certs. And what we'll find then is they're sort of like passports. We trust passports from certain nations. And there's other places where they've been saying don't trust passports because we think that their passport issuing equipment has been compromised. Much in the same way that certificates could potentially get compromised. And so what we want to do then is figure out, first of all, how do we protect uh, our public communications? Um, this is probably already done for you, but from time to time, I do run into websites that do not have HTTPS enabled. And when I see that they're security companies, I'm like facepalm. It's like, seriously, I'm supposed, you're a startup and you're security and you don't even do this basic stuff. So maybe one of the first things you want to look at for your internet web presence is, is that do all requests to port 80 get redirected to port 443 automatically? And then at 443, do you have an HTTPS or a secure certificate? Well, you got a couple of choices here. You can pay for it or you can not pay for it. And you can get about the same value. So given a choice of paying for something or not paying for something and getting something that's worth about the same, I would think a lot of people would probably say, I'll take the free one. And in the past, it's been kind of difficult to get free ones because Essentially, root certificate authorities charge money for that. Companies like VeriSign and things like that, which I figure is like the best business ever. People give you cold, hard cash and you give them back a bunch of ones and zeros in a certain order. And that's considered a fair exchange. But uh, over the last couple of years, a group called letsencrypt.org has become very popular. It's a nonprofit. And they've issued over 225 million certificates to date. And they have a couple interesting things going for them. Um, also, what you'll find out is that their best practice is when you issue a certificate, it's only good for about 90 days. We used to issue them for years. Well, what's the problem, Ross? If I were to give you a credential, let's say an ID card, and the ID card, like a driver's license or something like that, didn't require you to have a photograph on it or a signature. I remember years ago when I renewed my Florida license when I was in the military, I had it valid without photo and signature because I had to mail it away back before we did computer stuff. And that credential gets stolen. What happens then? Yeah, I think you bring up an excellent point. The one thing that's very different about the digital world is you can have things that are stolen and you may not even know it. Typically, mm -hmm. if I have my driver's license stolen, I'll, I'll notice when I go to the the grocery store and look for it and I can't find it. But somebody can copy my certificates, my keys, my secrets and use them. And I still have them on my server, but I didn't know that they stole them from me. So that's a big thing to think about. That's a little bit different in this digital world. It really is. And it, it sort of, you know, means a couple of things. First of all, if we're going to have credentials like that, we better make sure they're protected. And then typically what we'll find out is that if we're going to have uh, credentials uh, that are going to be these types of asymmetric keys, that we store them in a password protected or an encrypted manner. So the kind of the irony is, is that we have superseded, if you will, our thinking of 
symmetric key with asymmetric key. Wow, we can go ahead and exchange information with another party having never talked to them in the first place and be able to set it up securely. But the irony is, is to protect those keys when they're local, I need to go ahead and encrypt it with my symmetric key. So we're back to that again. So they really do work closely to each other together. And if you were to do an HTTPS communications, when you first connect, you'll find out that there's a key negotiation that goes on. This public key exchange is used to go ahead and negotiate a set of ciphers, which is then going to decide what algorithm do we going to use for confidentiality? What are we going to use for integrity? What do we use for authentication? What do we use for non-repudiation? All that takes place in that SSL or TLS handshake secure sockets layer, which has been deprecated due to security problems. And now transport layer security, TLS, which is a side note, Microsoft still has by default, if you've recently updated your operating system, that it will accept older versions of TLS or backward compatibility. Anything prior to version 1.2 is considered to be deprecated. That is to say, we recommend you don't use it because there have been known vulnerabilities discovered. Uh, 1.3 is still classified as experimental, but I think this year we're going to start to see it roll out a lot more. So another thing you want to make sure is that you speak 1.2 or 1.3 and that's it. Yeah, and, and let me just give a little bit of history on this, why it became so imperative to upgrade. In 2009, a hacker by the name of Moxie Marlinspike, and he's a good hacker, he's not just a, a bad hacker, created this tool called SSL Strip or Secure Socket Layer Strip. And, and what it allowed you to do is if you had a insecure, bad version of HTTPS, it could downgrade your traffic to HTTP. And what this allows you to do is see things in the clear, but what it also allowed you to do is inject things into the traffic with the man in the middle tool. And when this happened, attackers could now put malicious JavaScript into your browsers and do very, very bad things. So since 2009, we've really seen this become more of a common hacker criminal technique. And, and that's why we need to use very, very strong encryption because it's becoming more commoditized as a attacker tool. Yeah. And in fact, a lot had to do with the nature of SSL and that and during that negotiation, what would happen is, is I would say, hey, Ross, you speak 256-bit. You go, no. You speak 128-bit. No. You speak 64-bit. No. You speak 0-bit. Yeah, okay, let's use 0-bit encryption. And you'd end up with the null cipher, but you'd still get the little lock icon because that was one of the ciphers in the suite. So all you had to do is just basically said, hey, just keep saying no until you get to the lowest common denominator. It's another reason why we don't use the older versions of SSL anymore. But you brought up an excellent point is that if the communication begins unencrypted, there is an opportunity for that man in the middle to do anything you want. And so in a scenario where I were to go to my bank and let's say I go HTTPS colon slant slant www.mybank.com, a man in the middle is going to get stuck because under normal circumstances, if I just type in bank.com and hit enter, What's going to happen? My web browser is going to communicate on port 80 to their server. 
their server is going to say, hey, we don't do unencrypted communications. Please call me back on port 443. You basically get a redirect. My browser goes, okay, my bad. Then it comes back with an HTTPS request on port 443, and it does a secure negotiation. Everything's happy. But did you catch the window of vulnerability there? During that initial query where one goes out on port 80 for HTTP, mybank.com, a man in the middle intercepts that and said, hold right there. I'll get mybank.com on the line for you. The attacker then goes to mybank.com, gets redirected to port 443, gets kicked up to an encrypted session, at which point all communications between the attacker and the bank are protected. The attacker says, hmm, you asked for HTTP. You probably aren't paying attention to that little tiny lock icon in the upper left-hand corner. So I'm going to screen scrape what the bank sent to me and send it right back to you on HTTP. And you see, oh, mybank.com. So you log in with your ID and your password and you send it in the clear to the bad guy who then takes your ID and your password, sends it encrypted to the bank because you're a smart person. You've set up multi-factor authentication. So the bank says, we're going to send an SMS message to your cell phone. Sure enough, your cell phone gets a little bleep, bleep, bleep. You type in that six or eight character code. You give it in the clear to the attacker. The attacker sends it securely to the bank. And now the attacker is in and, of course, gives you the session. And you tell the attacker, hey, move 500 from checking to savings. The attacker tells the bank, move 500 from checking to savings. Then you tell him, pay my electric bill. And he says, pay my electric bill. Then you say, log out. And the attacker says, okay, you're logged out. But notice the attacker is still logged in with your multi-factor authentication turned on using a secure connection. And all because your user never started out with an HTTPS request. And so these man-in-the-middle tools, you can buy these things for $99, Wi-Fi pineapples, get them from Hack5. They're kind of fun toys. Make great Christmas gifts for a hacker that you know. It will allow you to do evil things such as that. What's the problem that we want to think about? If you have your business people on the road and they need to communicate back to corporate servers, mail servers, and things like that. If they're going through a web browser, the danger is, is that if they don't have a secure connection to begin with, that man in the middle can intercept. My sister got intercepted when she was traveling internationally, got home uh, the next week, got a call from the investment manager at a company saying, why you ask me to transfer $970,000 to an Asian bank? He says, what do you mean? He says, I just got a message from you. And sure enough, that was in her outbox, along with an outbox message to the bank downstairs, which was doing a wire transfer. She ran downstairs, got that to stop. All that discussion saying what? You want to make it easy for your employees, for your coworkers to use encryption by default. An attacker on the road could only at best give you free Wi-Fi if you're doing it correctly. So let's think about this in terms of being a CISO. How, how is this important and what could you use to make this to your benefit for the company? The first well, is there's an education piece you want to share with employees of your company that whenever they're in public locations, this is a risk of someone intercepting their communications. 
And the, and the second thing that I would also say is how do you build robust practices to, to G Mark's earlier point that when somebody says transfer money, we actually say, Hey, wait, did this person really send this? Is this a good idea? Does this make sense with all our previous contracts and negotiations? Or is this somebody impersonating us, uh, maybe with legitimate credentials to do something? Well, a couple items you brought up there, and they've got some different answers for it. But the first one is for your practice, for your people on the road. Yeah, absolutely. Security awareness is critical. People need to know what the threats are. And the security awareness best practice is to not over-educate people. Uh, you don't want to bore them by giving them eight hours worth of training and theory when really all they want to say is, I want to get back to work or I want to get back to my um, Facebook page or whatever they happen to be wanting to do. Uh, but as I said, a couple of things. One would be plugins such as HTTPS Anywhere, which would help out. Also, virtual private networking, VPNs. VPN software essentially sets up an encrypted tunnel at the beginning, at the outset, from when you begin to communicate. And if your users are required to use a VPN because you lock it down and you basically say, until you turn your VPN on, you're not going to be able to check your email. You're not going to be able to do stuff. You are able to essentially defeat these man-in-the-middle attacks because anybody who attempts to alter that communication stream is going to fail to meet the cryptographic validations, and it's going to set off some sort of alert saying, hey, you know, this doesn't look right or whatever, which is, of course, the second part of user education is to make sure people, when they get an intercept message, it says, warning, there's a problem with the certificate. They don't click proceed anyway. They don't just say go ahead, that they come to a full stop and said, wait a minute, Ross told me that this was a very dangerous circumstance. If I ever happened to encounter it, I better pick up the phone right away and call my IT support desk. It might be benign. It's been happening. But for example, if I try to connect to HTTPS from a hotel and the hotel tries to intercept my initial outbound request, like a quote unquote, good man in the middle to do what? To make sure that I've a registered guest and I paid the $9.95 a night or whatever, then I might get a certificate mismatch. We want to figure that out. And if you turn on your VPN so that's the only way you can communicate, your people will be locked out at hotels. They can't get out. So you have to work that out. The second one, which you'd mentioned, which I think was really key, is having some out-of-band communication protocols established. So if you had said, for example, that uh, business email compromise, that's the FBI's term for when people are trying to go ahead and steal money from you electronically, uh, chief financial officer gets a message from the CEO. Hey, I'm in a secret negotiations for a takeover deal. It's really important that we don't let anybody know about this. It could move a stock price, but I need you to transfer $50,000 to this account right away. Well, we talked previously about things such as DKIM and DMARC and SPF and how we could protect emails. But more to the point, do you have a human protocol? Because they're, if I get a phone call from somebody and it says, hey, this is Ross, and I recognize your voice, and it's the right caller ID, and we're communicating, then that works. And if you step in my office, that works. But if I just get an email, how do I know it's really you? So you need to have something set up, maybe a disposable, one-time, burn-after-use password that says, hey, Ross, I need you to do something special, unusual, out of the ordinary. And the secret password is, you know, green parakeets, uh, eat tofu or something like that. 
Um, you're never going to say that in a sentence normally. And once you've used it, you've used it. But now you've got to work around it. And absent that, you question it. The other piece that I would say is when you think about connecting to Wi-Fi routers, when you own them, there's a little bit more trust. But when you're in public locations where you don't know if it's a Wi-Fi pineapple, let's say malicious router versus the Starbucks router that you're expecting, you might look for simple solutions like, how do I just tether my laptop to my personal phone and use my cellular data connection? That may be another short-term win if you don't have a VPN, although there's a lot of free ways to get VPNs today. For example, Opera, which is a web browser like Internet Explorer or Google Chrome, comes built in with a VPN if you get the desktop version. So lots of really interesting solutions there to help people, but think about the, the aspect of trust. Yeah, you mentioned about Wi-Fi, and let me bring that up, an important thing about Wi-Fi encryption. So typically, if you go to a hotel or an airport or a Starbucks or anything like that, what you're going to find out is that there's an open Wi-Fi signal and let you know that it's open. Basically, meaning there's no encryption on that. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is, is that anybody else who can communicate or can listen to that initial negotiation of your session could potentially eavesdrop on what you're doing. Not a good idea. So how do we pass or protect it? Well, we can get WPA2 protection, which is what we ought to have. Uh, there's WAP and WPA, both of which have been considered deprecated or obsolete. And today we look for what's called WPA2. But essentially what that does is that requires one of a couple things. The traditional way is called a pre-shared key or PSK. So oftentimes you'll see WPA2 hyphen PSK. And you're like, what does that mean? Okay, well, it's Wi-Fi protected access to with pre-shared key. And it basically means that the key is written behind the, um, the counter at Starbucks. And so you say, hey, if you want to use the Wi-Fi, here's the password. Or if you go to a company, we have a guest network. And so what we do is we have a little sheet of paper in the conference room saying, if you need to use our guest network, here is the key. The advantage there is that all your communications on your Wi-Fi are encrypted and therefore, someone trying to listen in on it can't listen in. Here's the danger of walking around with your laptop or your cell phone with one of these non-password protected Wi-Fi access points recorded or saved. Because what happens then is your systems almost by default are going to try to connect to known hotspots. And if the known hotspot is Starbucks and it never had a password, and you're sitting somewhere out in a field, and I can come nearby and light up a little Wi-Fi transmitter that calls itself Starbucks, you're going to connect to me. And you're going to connect to me unencrypted. And that creates a vulnerability. And so as a result, any corporate Wi-Fi needs to be encrypted. And the longer, the more complicated the password, the better, so nobody can brute force it. And for our corporate Wi-Fi network, we never, ever, ever tell the users what the password is. It's written down in a little book. And our IT guy, when he sets up a laptop, installs it initially, and it's out of reach of the user. Why? Because if someone were to try to spoof that same station identifier, the same SSID, but they didn't know that long, complicated password, the machine wouldn't connect to it. And therefore, you don't have that vulnerability as well. 
That's a great point. I, I, I love that. And, you know, these no password networks are the unfortunate gift that keeps on giving where attackers can now attack you. That's, that's something to watch out for. So, so you talked a little bit about wireless security. How about just on our laptops? Is there any type of endpoint uh, encryption we should consider? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we find out is that a standard encryption for Microsoft is going to be a tool called BitLocker. BitLocker has been around since Windows 7, Windows 8, 8.1, and 10. And what we find out then is that the advantage of BitLocker is that what we can do is we can store information on a hard drive. And if we set it up correctly, were that laptop to be lost or stolen, a couple of things come out of that. Number one is, is that um, I don't have to worry about my data being compromised. That's assuming that the thing wasn't logged in and turned on and running, and then you turned around to go get a refill on your coffee and turned around your laptop was gone. But if it disappeared at the airport or something like that. Um, fine. Number two, no breach disclosure requirements because every breach disclosure law has a carve out for if the data were encrypted when it was stolen, then you don't have to report it. So that makes things a whole lot easier from the compliance department. Now, if you still were running Windows XP, which hopefully there's not too many of those out there anymore, although I know that uh, one certain military service has extended support of XP into, I think, the year 2027, just because they didn't want to get rid of embedded systems. In any case, uh, BitLocker uh, can be enabled fairly easily during rollout. So if you're provisioning machines for your employees, make sure that's part of the rollout process. And you've got your choice of either a startup key or a pin, typically entering in some sort of a key or a, a pin, or if you have a trusted platform module and it has to be installed on the motherboard, the TPM, then that could be done TPM alone, TPM and startup key, TPM and pin, TPM key and startup pin. There's a lot of different options and things like that. But also think about this. How about recovery? What if a user calls up, oh, I forgot my pin. Oh, I forgot my password. <laughs> okay, we use biometrics on our, um, so for example, on my uh, corporate laptop, when I go ahead and light off the machine and it's protected with BitLocker, tick, 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 tick. I'm going to go ahead and enter in my startup uh, key. And then afterwards, to go ahead and get into Windows, I have a biometric login. There's two different processes here. But once I get past that first BitLocker recovery, the disk is essentially unencrypted. Um, how much overhead does that add? You think, wow, if I'm encrypting, decrypting every read and write, that's going to take up a lot. Um, very small amount. It's almost not noticeable. 0.01 maybe of your processing. And, and I'll give you a, a fun story. Back in the day, I, I was, you know, a, a techie person and I get a lot of, oh, how do I unlock my laptop? I forgot my password. And people would commonly ask this and they didn't have BitLocker. And what you could do was something known as sticky keys. And if you never heard of sticky keys on the Windows login, if you tap, I, I believe it's the shift key, shift key. Five like times. Uh, five times, it brings up a disability function to, to help people who are impaired being able to log in. Well, what you could do is you could actually change what sticky keys pointed to. So instead of opening up the sticky keys executable, you could open up the command prompt. 
and then create a new admin user. And it had full admin privileges. And in this way, I didn't have to know what your password was. I just created a new admin, logged into the network, and then from there changed your password to whatever you wanted. So these types of vulnerabilities allowed hackers to get into machines and steal all sorts of data. But now, if the machine is encrypted, right, I don't really have the ability to change that sticky keys executable because I haven't been able to log in and get to that point. And so this is a, a really big thing of, of how we've figured out how to solve one easy problem. We've seen BitLocker on Windows and we've seen FileVault on, on Mac really come into prominence and secure a lot of good machines. Yeah. And again, as I mentioned, that key recovery is important. So your recovery password up to 48 digits could be stored in Active Directory. So it could be recovered from there. You can print it out and put it in a safe. A recovery key for uh, BitLocker is going to be 256 bits, ones and zeros, and save that to a little USB. And for an enterprise, for those who want to do a little bit of homework, they can look up on a data recovery agent or DRA. Your system administrator can then essentially do that. So it's important to encrypt your stuff to protect it, but it's also important to be able to get it back. So as we think about this, there's one other piece that we also really need to understand is the cloud is a little bit different, right? So cloud security keys are the next generation of how attackers are, are focusing. And, and we want to think about how can we use tools to secure those? In addition, we need to think about how does this environment change as we, we think about things differently? So historically, if I had a Word document that was very sensitive, let's say it contains next quarter's earnings reports, we need to think about how do we keep that secure in our environment? And what happens if I have to share that with somebody and it leaves our organization? Are there things we can do to think about securing that as well? And well, excellent, excellent point. And Ross, you're the cloud expert here. And so I'm going to defer to you for a lot of that. But essentially, just because you put it in the cloud doesn't necessarily mean you can forget about securing it. Because we can outsource an awful lot of things, but you can't outsource risk. And having to go to your shareholders, your board of directors, or uh, being in a courtroom testifying to say, well, it's not my fault. Blame Amazon, blame Microsoft, blame Google, blame somebody else. They screwed it up uh, is not going to remove any accountability whatsoever. So, for example, in Amazon, what is it we can do in Amazon to help protect our information up there? So there's two things I, I hope everybody has a chance to take a look at if you're going to implement AWS. The first is AWS Key Management Service, also known as KMS. And what this allows you to do is encrypt your servers and your data within S3 buckets and, and all sorts of storage locations. Think of this as the modern day BitLocker for the cloud. In addition, Amazon also has a key storage location that you can use with AWS Systems Manager Agent. So if you have a server, rather than having to put all of your keys 
into your source code, which might be very visible in locations, what you can do is say, I want this server to authenticate with a backend service and get the keys in real time. And by doing this, if somebody scans your source code, they're not going to see the keys to get into the systems. So SSM agent and KMS are the two things you really have to think about if you're going to do security well in AWS. And, and you brought up an excellent point about the presence of keys in source code. And a lot of people say, well, no one's ever going to see our source code. Well, first of all, if anybody's using a repository like GitHub or something like that, that's where you often can get disclosed uh, because sometimes people just leave stuff in there. Also, just having access to compiled code, just run a strings on it, and you can often see contiguous characters in there that may represent things that doesn't compile out, but they're just uh, raw text. Uh, so having an external location where you have to go get a key uh, is obviously a much better idea because it then allows you to dynamically change those keys uh, over time to in invalidate the problem of continuous um, stolen key reuse. Because as you'd point out previously, what if someone were to have stolen one of your digital credentials and you didn't know about it? Well, one of the things you might want to consider doing if you're doing customer interaction on your website is to have your users periodically reauthenticate every few minutes. So last year I flew, well, not last year, I guess, two years ago, flew well over 100 flights, um, and most of them's on Southwest. So their business website, Swab is, every 20 minutes or so, I'll, even if I'm in the middle of booking a reservation, I got to reauthenticate. Why? Because if someone were ever to grab that authenticated session, there's just so much damage they can do. And it's a little bit like a zero trust environment where your trust decays over time. Think about that. Reissue your keys on a regular basis. Um, not because you're convinced they're compromised, but just in case they were. Great point. I, I think those are excellent examples. And having the ability to centralize your keys allows a security organization and, and a business organization to do best practices. We can force key rotations. If we want to say all our keys expire after 30 days. So if an attacker does steal it, it, it becomes stale and, and no longer valid is, a, is another thing we can do to help secure our organization. Mm -hmm. as, as we get close to, to wrapping up here, Gmark, is there any other key takeaways you want to share with our listeners? I guess that's a pun there on the key takeaways. <laughs> but yeah, with regard to crypto, uh, don't be afraid of it. It's a lot of the hard math. Don't worry, it's already been done for you. What's really important is when we focus on cryptography is think about the business usage. Understand that vendors are going to offer you products. Not all of them are good ones. There have been time to time where there have been wholesale compromises of things. So avoid the new obscure, oh, this is a super secret algorithm. We never tell anybody. Security by obscurity doesn't work. What you want is tools that have undergone public scrutiny. It uses the advanced encryption standard AES. That's been approved since the year 2001. It's got 20 years of history under it. It's probably going to be okay. Number two, make sure that your users are not encountered with a huge obstacle to getting the job done. If crypto makes it hard to get work done, they're going to work around it. Work it into the workflow. Reduce the friction so that it becomes effortless. And then raise the awareness of your people so they know that when 
a system pops up a warning, they know what to do about it instead of just kind of bl blindly drive through it. It's like the little check engine light on your dashboard. Some people don't know the difference between maybe a little light that says your um, fuel door is open, okay, keep driving, or you know, low oil pressure, which means you better stop right away before your engine ceases up. People need to understand those differences. Those simple little things I think will go a long, long way. Great. Well, G. Mark, I appreciate your expertise in this area. And for all the listeners, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode of CISO Tradecraft. Remember, this show really thrives on audience participation. So if you have questions, write them in to our website at CISOTradecraft.com, as well as share the episode with your friends on LinkedIn and Twitter. We'd love to have more followers and, and continue to provide you the tradecraft that you need that helps you in your environment. So thank you once again for tuning in and we appreciate your time. Take care.